At the time of recording this episode on the 7th of April 2023, it's not only the Easter bank holiday weekend in the UK, but it's also the 75th birthday of the World Health Organization. Now, whilst it's clear the World Health Organization has done some great work over its 75 years of existence, it's also evident that the World Health Organization has become increasingly corrupt and is suffering from a deep lack of transparency, a deep lack of democracy. And not only this, it's become under the mercy of its corporate partners, particularly Big Pharma and NGOs and uh, philanthropy organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who have become one of the top funders. Now, of course, this raises many questions about the future of the World Health Organization. But despite its recent past, we can also see that during the course of the pandemic, it promoted policies that have gone on to hurt. Uh, cause widespread collateral harms across the world. And now, despite these harms, without any inquest into the performance of the World Health Organization over the course of the last few years, it is now pursuing greater powers through the pandemic treaty and the international health regulations amendments. So in today's episode, marking the 75th birthday of the WHO, I'm joined by James Roguski, who's an activist, and natural health advocate to explore the challenges that these new uh, legal instruments pose to our health sovereignty, but also the risks that it poses to future pandemic outbreaks in terms of what we've witnessed over the last few years and making those things uh, not only precedents, but potentially legally or binding or mandated in the future. So. Sit back, watch this uh, hour-long interview with James. You'll find it deeply insightful. And to celebrate the 75th birthday of the WHO, we put together a very special campaign in conjunction with the World Council for Health, where we are calling to stop the amendment. So to participate in the UK government petition, we invite you to go to uk.stoptheamendments.com and sign the UK petition. It's currently sitting at around 6,000 um, signatures. We need it to reach at least 10,000 to be taken seriously and 100,000 if we want to see a debate in uh, Parliament. So please go to uk.stoptheamendments.com, add your signature, and together we can play a role in stopping these amendments. If you want to find out why these amendments are dangerous, then watch on as I speak with James Roguski. Who makes the rules? Who controls the global health governance? Well, at this moment in time, it's the World Health Organization. And despite a car crash of a response to the global pandemic, the World Health Organization is seeking to uh, accumulate even more powers to direct and coordinate global health governance with specific reference to the way that pandemics are prepared and responded to. Now, this is moving forward at pace without any form of independent inquiry into the World Health Organization's role within the um, COVID chapter and the response to COVID. Yet, this new set of international health regulations and pandemic treaty are steamrolling ahead. Now, we've recently covered this on the uh, Elevate podcast, but we're here today with James Roguski, who is an author, researcher and activist who's written quite literally uh, countless articles on this particular issue, um, dissecting every single article within the uh, international health regulations. So I thought there's no better person uh, to bring to the show to dissect this even further. So, James, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Um, you know, a year ago, a little bit more than a year ago, um, I had... Uh, several decades of work um, removed forcibly from the internet because I must have said something somebody didn't like. And I, I, I had a great reset of my own um, a little bit more than a year ago. And I stumbled into a document um, from the WHO. And so I just want to say to everybody listening, a year ago, I had no idea that any of this existed. OK, and so hopefully um, all the research I've done over the last year can help shorten everybody else's learning curve. You know, hopefully I'll be able to summarize, you know, a, a year's worth of effort um, in the WHO 
to an hour. So let's see if we can accomplish that so that everybody can get up to speed as soon as possible. Yeah, so I mentioned in the intro that this, we've got the international health regulations, um, which are, of course, in existence right now since 2005, but there's a series of proposed amendments. But then we've got the pandemic treaty as well. Could you tell us a little bit about how these two things intersect and which, which we really need to pay attention to? That's, that's exactly the perfect place to start. If, if you could envision two parallel train tracks going off into the distance, you know, two, two negotiations going you know, off into the future, um, almost everybody, and I mean just about everybody, has mixed the two together. And so when they speak about it, they don't compartmentalize the information. And then the fact checkers come out and they go, oh, that's fake news or that's misinformation. And technically they're correct. So what I wanna make sure that we do with everybody, with you and me and everyone else, let's talk about one thing at a time because otherwise people get it all mixed up together. Would you prefer to talk about the treaty? I would prefer to talk about the amendments first because they're actually older and existing and, and, and all that sort of stuff. So if we start with that, you got to go back um, to the time of the Civil War in the United States, 1850s, okay? Certainly through the late 1800s. Um, originally, they were um, referred to as sanitary regulations. If you could imagine a time, you know, merry old England or Paris, and if you had to relieve yourself, you had a chamber pot. And, you know, when you got around to it, you threw it out into the street or the gutter or wherever. And there was, you know sewage running through the rivers if you were downstream you know good luck to you okay people just threw their problem in the river and down it went well the sanitary regulations did a lot to reduce infectious disease you could imagine okay and and so around the time of world war ii when the who after you know after world war ii who was formed along with the un um most of those diseases had significantly been reduced and then they start jabbing people and give credit to the jabs. And that's why everybody's all confused is they don't realize that history, okay? 1948, um, in the United States, I can speak very clearly for it, on June 14th, 1948, Harry Truman signed a joint resolution for Congress entering into this new World Health Organization. But when we signed in, we said, we're happy to join, but this is just going to be an advisory organization and we're happy to help but it literally says in the resolution whatever it is you say we don't have to do it if we don't want to okay and, and so the who for decades has been an advisory organization fast forward in 1969 they changed the name of the sanitary regulations to the international health regulations okay they made a few amendments in the 80s and so forth but you get to 9-11 and um, the SARS outbreak. And then in 2005, they made a number of changes to the international health regulations. And they should have changed the name because the name of international health regulations confuses the daylights out of everybody. Okay, They should be called the International Surveillance Monitoring Reporting um, emergency declaring fear-mongering control regulations. And then everybody would go, oh, what the heck is going on there? I got to pay attention, okay? And, I, and I'm not kidding, okay? I'm, I'm not being hyperbolic. If you read it, you know, section five is all about surveillance and, and reporting. And it's not about health people. And so what we're talking about, because people use the word health, right? People think, oh, we're going to be discussing some of the things you know that that people are legitimately concerned about are these um, things that they call tests really a fraudulent use of the RT-PCR technology? Is that really a test of whether or not you're diseased? Clearly not. Okay, um, they're not talking about early treatment. They're not talking about this, that, or the other essential medications. They're not talking about nutrition or herbs or vitamins or any of that sort of thing. They're, they're not talking about Wow, these injectable things that we said were going to make everything go back to normal. 
I don't think anything's gone back to normal. I think they've made things worse. And I don't think anybody in their right mind can argue that they did what they were promised. You know, we were promised they were going to do that. They're not talking about, you know, did masks have any benefit? Did lockdowns and quarantine and travel restrictions and, you know, everything else that was done to us. Um, they're not doing what they need to do before any treaty negotiations or amendments um, are, are considered. They're not having the, and I, unfortunately, this is an appropriate word. They're not conducting a post-mortem analysis about, well, why did people die over these last three years? What really happened? Was it too much SARS-CoV-2? Or was it too much midazolam and too much, you know, harmful ventilators and too much remdesivir and, and, and too much, you know, psychological trauma? You know, what actually really happened over these last three, you know, plus years? No, 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 no. The WHO actually had or conducted um, what they called an, um, in, in focused, in, in, an informal focused consultation. And on September 21st of last year, they had all of their experts come together. And one of the questions that the WHO moderator asked the experts was, well, you know, going forward, um, what criteria, what metrics would you use if we were, you know, trying to determine whether or not any given nation was properly prepared? Because one of the core issues with the international health regulations, and this is their term, that they insist that nations meet certain core capacities, okay, to be able to pay attention to what's going on in their country. And the only real requirement is to um, pay attention, to monitor, you know, oh, a whole lot of people are coming into the hospital and they have this unusual thing. Let's alert the WHO so the WHO can alert the world. OK, I don't have any problem with that. That's legitimate. You know, the requirement to alert the world that you've got a problem, that's just part of the, you know, being a member of the international community. Well, these core capacities should have metrics by which you would determine, OK, great. You know, you're doing all of the things that you need to do. You are as prepared as we need you to be. Well, the experts back in September 21st said, you know, we don't know. Uh, the metrics that we were using in 2020 failed miserably. You would have thought that Northern Italy and Spain and Portugal and Germany and you know, everything in Europe and the UK and the United States, you would have thought with all their high tech, you know, and, and, you know, for the United States, the ability to print money, you know, to do whatever they want. Um, you would have thought that those nations would have done better, but if you look at the African nations and if you go to the WHO website and you look at their data, which I think is fraudulent and flawed and it's a mess, but it's their data. It's the data that they are presenting to the world as, you know, the end all be all factual data. North and South America actually have fewer people than Africa. Most people don't think, you know, Africa's got a lot of people, right? 16 times as many people in North and South America, their deaths were attributed to COVID when compared to Africa. If you look at Europe, it's even higher. It could be up to 30 times per, you know, per person, per capita. Um, Africa did substantially better, like astonishingly better, not like, you know, a couple of percent to make it statistically relevant. It's like statistically, you know, unavoidably obvious that something different went on in Africa than in Europe and North and South America. And they just said, okay, we don't want to talk about that. Um, we want more money to build out more pharmaceutical hospital emergency industrial complex infrastructure in Africa. And so you sit back and you go, well, wait a minute. If you were taking the fork in the road that said, well, we want to you know, be concerned about health you'd go, well, that's backwards. We should be going and talking to people like Dr. Shankar Chetty in South Africa, who had well over 10,000 patients and not a single one went to the hospital, okay? We should be talking to other doctors who've had success and exporting their wisdom to the rest. Oh, no, 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 shut them down, keep them quiet. 
and, and you go, well, wait a minute. Um, oh, I get it. This isn't about health at all. This is about surveillance and monitoring and reporting and control and money, right? And so if you take that other fork and you go down the road of, I, I got to not think normal. I got to not think like a human being and be concerned about people's health. I got to think about people's wealth. Oh, all of a sudden everything makes sense now. Okay. What would you do if you had a, a whole, you know, 1.2 billion people, okay, and fewer of them got access to your poison, few of them got access to your biological weapon jab, would you say, oh, let's follow their advice and, and heal the rest of the world in the manner in which they were healed? Well, that's bad for business. So what happened last year, all of this, you know, information goes back, you know, to the beginning of 2020 and so forth. And, and then in 20, at the end of 2020, the rumbling started for a treaty. And so at the end of 2021, the WHO got together and had a, a, a special meeting. They, they normally only meet once a year, but only for the second time. They, they had a special meeting at the end of November, December 2021. And they decided, well, gosh darn it, you know, we need a treaty. Okay. Well, you know, it would be good to understand what the heck you did wrong so that you could have a treaty to fix it. But they skipped the postmortem. They skipped the concept of, well, you know, what did we do wrong? What did we do right? Let's interview all of the people who had success and try to learn from that. No, because you got to remember, it's not about health. That's what you would do if you were concerned about people's health. So fast forward to about a year ago, um, I discovered a document that was hidden very, very well. Um, the Biden administration had um, submitted proposed amendments to the international health regulations. Now, this is at the same time that they're talking about a treaty and they're meeting about a treaty, but they had not yet put forth any um, document. There was no initial draft or rough draft. There were many, many, many proposals. So I had written um, on March 24th, an enormous article about all of the proposals. And then three or four days later, I discovered this other proposal from the Biden administration to change this other document, the amendments to the international health regulations. And I'm like, what is this? And so I fell down the rabbit hole last year. And about this time last year, um, the WHO uh, put out a notice. I think they did it on April 6th or 7th. And they said, in regards to this proposed pandemic treaty, um, we are taking public comments. And so they gave about five or six days notice, and they set up a system where people could um, request to speak if you were a member of quote unquote civil society. And so um, I went to fill out the form and I said, well, what organization are you with? Well, I had just written an article entitled The People's Treaty. So if you go to thepeoplestreaty.com, you can see um, what my thoughts were a year ago. And so I filled out the form and I said, oh, my organization is the People's Treaty. And lo and behold, they accepted it. And I was given two minutes speaking time before the WHO to express my opinion. And it's still published up on their website from their public comment period. But I also spread the word. And in that five or six day period of time, we got 33,884 people to submit written public comments and they ignored them. After the assembly in May, they um, said, oh, we got a bunch of comments, okay? And then they canceled the next public comment period, which was scheduled for mid-June. And they actually put up, and I did a screenshot of it, so I have it in one of my articles, um, they put it the text in their cancellation of the event that they wanted the public comment to support what they were doing. 
Well, when we finally got a hold of the 33,884 comments, 99.9% .9 of them were like, we don't want a treaty. We don't want to give the WHO more power and authority. We want to understand, you know, what the heck went wrong. But from the WHO standpoint, if you realize we're not talking about health, if you put on the, the mindset of what would you do if you wanted more control, more power, and more money, and all of your friends were in the pharmaceutical hospital emergency industrial complex? Oh, you'd amend the international health regulations to empower that industry. And if you were really bold, you'd create a whole new document on top of this one and get people all confused between the two of them. And so what they did at the um, assembly last May was the Biden's proposals were pretty much kicked to the curb. There was enough of an uproar. It's like, no, we don't want to do that. They actually, it's, we can't get into the whole details of it now. We don't have time. But they actually did adopt amendments to the international health regulations that were illegitimately submitted after the Biden administration's ones were, were kicked to the curb. And so there were some changes to the international health regulations adopted last year. I hope we get a chance to talk about those more because it's very pertinent right, right now, actually this morning. Um, and, and they set up a um, group called the Working Group for Amendments to the International Health Regulations. And they invited all nations to submit proposed amendments. And so... The deadline for that was September 30th, and the uh, nations submitted amendments to the working group. All told, 94 nations submitted different proposed amendments, which means 100 nations said, no, leave it all alone, right? So there's obviously there's this you know, difference of opinion as to what can and should be done to change the international health regulations. Fast forward from September, October, November, December, nothing but secrecy. We had submitted um, freedom of information requests. Finally, in the middle of December, they revealed the 307 amendments that have been proposed. And some of them are absolutely outrageous. They had a meeting February 20th to the 24th. And they discussed uh, the amendments. In, in that span of time, October, November, December, January, uh, Tedros Ghebreyesus, the director general, uh, created, as is his right, a review committee to analyze and give a report on these 307 amendments. And so in mid-January, uh, this review committee, which was a, a confidential uh, review that was um, impaneled by Tedros and only reported to Tedros. They submitted their report to him in mid-January. At the beginning of February, he submitted it to the working group, so it became public. And then at the end of February, there was a presentation given that was videoed and it was presented to the working group. And then they went into secret negotiations and everything went quiet. Okay, and and so the public comment was com non-existent in regards to the amendments. The public comment that I mentioned from April of last year was about the treaty that did not even exist at the time. They were discussing a treaty, and ninety-nine percent of thirty-three thousand people in the span of a week said, "No, we don't want you to do that," but they're doing it anyways. Okay, and so um, where we are now is there are these two tracks moving forward. There's 307 proposed amendments to the existing regulations. And the biggest problem is that people don't realize that there's a dramatically different manner in which a treaty would be adopted and amendments are adopted. Now, I told you last year, the Assembly met in May and they did adopt amendments to five articles. And I'm going to guess you didn't get the memo. I'm going to guess none of your viewing <laughs> audience really 
could tell me what those five changes were. Okay. Um, they've kept it completely secret. It's public, but nobody's talking about it. So you can get the information. If you go to stopthewho.com, all the documents are all right there. And here's why. The 194 delegates to the WHO are not elected. They're unaccountable. They quite frankly have, um, you know, diplomatic immunity. They can do whatever pretty much they want without, you know, being egregiously breaking the law. Um, when they get together every year, if they decide to change or amend the international health regulations, they just literally, they went into a back room. I have it all on video. They went into a back room to, to decide what the changes would be. They come back out into the main assembly hall and they already know that everybody's in agreement. So they go through this ritual of, okay, we're discussing this document now. Does anybody object? Okay, great. It's passed. And that changes international law. There's no signature needed by a prime minister or a president. There's no review by any parliamentary body or advice and consent by the Senate. That's it. They have so decided. Now, there is a process by which um, each nation under Article 61 of the regulations can say, no, you know what, wait a minute. Um, thank you for all these amendments. But for our nation, we reject them. Okay. And so there's an 18 month period that every nation can say to the WHO, go pound sand. You know, you, you adopted these amendments, that's all fine and dandy, but they will not apply to us, whatever the nation may be. But if they keep it secret and nobody talks about it and the 18 month period slides quietly by, then it goes into force after 24 months. So we're 10 months in to this period of time where changes were made to international law. And everybody's talking about the treaty. Well, I haven't been talking about the treaty. I'm talking about the amendments to the regulations. The treaty, yes, would you know sit before Parliament for 21 days and people could talk about it, or you know the Senate would give its advice and consent. Or, or, or I'm not talking about that. People don't realize the cognitive dissonance. Wait a minute. How could this possibly be that 194 people get together? They quietly decide to change the law, and that's it. Okay, well, we have the right to um, reject it, but all of our leaders in all of our countries are either, you know, completely clueless or in on the deal. And the nations where the money would be flowing to are very much, you know, hey, this is great. You know, we want to send all this money to us. And so if you could agree to get into an organization where if they decide they want to raise tens of billions of dollars and give it to somebody, would you want to be one of those somebodies? So would you go, oh, yeah, we'll vote for that. Sure. OK, um, sounds like really good for our people. Right. And if they keep it quiet for 18 months, boom, it's done. OK. And, and so there's a petition that just got launched yesterday. We can talk about that um, to demand that, you know, this be addressed. And, and so um, I, I, I've been rambling on for about half an hour, so I'll stop talking. I could keep going for days. This is, this is crazy. Um, all, we've been, all I've been talking about, though, so far are the amendments to the international health regulations because they're existing law and the changes do not require a signature or, you know, any legislative body to approve of it. It requires consideration and a proactive rejection of them after they've been adopted. No public comment, no nothing. And, and so the structure by which the regulations are adopted and put into force it's such cognitive dissonance. People go, but a treaty, but a treaty, but a treaty. Well, you know, probably the manner in which amendments are adopted should be amended. Okay. But they're not talking about that. They're not talking about your health. They're not talking to doctors. They're talking about how do we get more money and more control to build out the pharmaceutical hospital emergency industrial complex and I haven't even started talking about the details of the 307 amendments, which are 
outlandish. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll take a break and, and give you a word in edgewise here. <laughs> so, well, I think the, the reality is this um, pharmaceutical um, hospital Juggernaut. emergency yeah. industrial. Yeah, this is it's become it's become so normalized that I, I get the sense that those within the organizations are, can't, aren't even self-aware of it yeah. now. It's it's so deeply entrenched. It has been since well for decades, but particularly since the funding of the organization diverged from purely being at the member state level. Um, but but even prior to that, you know, there were so many what what in normal terms would be described as kind of crony contracts, and not limited to the pharmaceutical industry, but the food industry, the tobacco industry, big big industry have dominated over health global health. For, for so long now that it's become second nature. Um, but the tricky part here is with the particular amendments is they are complex in a way. You've, met, you've broken them down on your site that, that kind of gives you a, an over, overview of what they all mean. But I, I get the sense even those responsible at the national level for assessing these documents. I've spoken to lawyers who look through these documents and they're scratching their heads at what, what the terms are actually getting at. Unless you actually have a background in public health and law at the same, you know, you know or public health uh, law, then actually understanding the ramifications of these terms and clauses is actually quite tricky. Uh, and in my, my wider concern is, well, firstly, the people at the national level, do they have a deep understanding of the consequences of their decisions? Secondly, that they're part of the same machinery anyway. So the same incentive structure applies to them as or likely does as much as it does to the organization. So the whole setup means that there is no direct line between or direct, direct connection to the public who, who these inst instruments are supposed to be serving. And it's no surprise that they're steamrolling ahead with these things because uh, under the guise of needing greater global cooperation, because it's very easy to use that as a smokescreen for what's going on. Because, I mean, let's face it, you know, even though that a lot of the things happened in relative lockstep, it was an uncoordinated mess. You know, countries weren't talking with one another. They weren't sharing information. So they can use all of that headline problem dialogue to instigate this and use that to smear over all of the things you, you mentioned quite rightly have been lacking, which is that kind of post-mortem, the, the independent inquiry into the, 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 the handling of the COVID pandemic, which was completely unorthodox. Has, and you, you know, you've listed off some of the healthcare outcomes, but you know, that's not limited to healthcare outcomes. We've got the collateral damage to the economy, society, the, you know, the fabric of our culture, um, mental health, the list goes on. You know, it's, it's, it's been so damaging Yet here we have an organization which is trying to create binding instruments to actually normalize this pathway. And it is entirely predicated on the pharmaceutical, you know, I keep losing track of the acronyms, but, you know, the pharmaceutical hospital emergency industrial complex. It's, it, it, that's, that's deeply woven at the fabric. Now, James, a lot of the questions I get are, are more of a technical nature around the legalities of this and, and to, the, to what degree it's binding. And I, I don't know if you can comment on this, but let's presuppose these amendments are by default confirmed and accepted on the basis that no, no rejection or, 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 or objection was raised. Isn't it true that the nation states still need to ratify those amendments into their local set of health uh, laws do they do they not need to create localized legislation in, in in order for that to then be binding at a national level, or, or does this global architecture supersede that to a degree? Well, and, and I know that, that that that's kind of reflective of the old system as well as the new system. You know, in terms of how how it, how it's proposed. And 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 again, um, let me try to just make sure everybody is super super clear. Okay, when we haven't really been talking about the treaty. Okay, that's a totally different subject, no, that's right. and, and everybody gets yes. that in their heads: yes. treaty, treaty, treaty. Right? You know. Okay, um, we're talking about amendments to the international health regulations. Two of which, um, there, there's actually you have to break it apart. There are the amendments that were adopted last May. Okay, and and so yes. anytime an argument comes up about 
well, you know, what are the legalities of it? I forget exactly the terminology that you used. You have to realize they did this last year. They adopted amendments in front of everybody. And nobody knows that it happened. Okay, you got to just let that sink in. And, and so what I have found is the cognitive dissonance of reality compared to what people believe reality should be, right? It should be the case that we, the people, at the very least, through our representatives or through our delegates, um, have some input, right? So what's going on right now, and, and, and this is such a convoluted mess, right? In the UK, last year, May 3rd, last year, a petition was started. Now, if you're aware, your um, viewers are aware, um, if you get 10,000 signatures in six months, um, the government has to respond. The UK government has to respond. If you get 100,000 signatures, parliament has to hold a discussion. Okay. Well, from May 3rd to May 16th last year, two weeks, okay, there's over 100,000 signatures saying we want a discussion about the treaty. Now, here's where it gets interesting, right? Um, they just scheduled the debate for April 17th. There were 100,000 signatures on May 16th last year. They waited 11 months to respond to the will of the people to talk about the treaty. Very responsive government, I would say. Okay, at least they're having a discussion. And so everybody should be aware that it's going to be a televised discussion, 4.30 p.m. in the UK, April 17th. Um, the argument about that is wrongheaded. Okay, they're going to be talking about whether or not, you know, the people should have a right to vote on such a treaty. They're most generally not going to be saying, why are you getting into an international agreement before you've done a postmortem on what the heck just happened? Okay. And so, but that isn't really still even, you know, what they should be talking about because the, the treaty um, still being negotiated, they're actually doing it right now in secret as we talk. Okay. This week, um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, they're having meetings of the intergovernmental negotiating body and they're meeting in secret. They had a little half an hour meeting on Monday and there's no communication. There's no public input. There's no discussion in parliament. And they're most likely not going to be talking about the details of the treaty. And so what I'm encouraging everyone to do is read the darn document. Okay. Um, it's a 32 page document. Now I'm, I'm shifting gears. I'm talking about the treaty. It's a 32-page document. Um, it is unknown which nations recommended which parts of the treaty. It's all convoluted. At least with the amendments, we know which nation did what, okay, or, or proposed which. Um, the treaty is a 32-page document, and I can warn you right out of the beginning that the first 12 pages is wonderful propaganda just spectacularly well-crafted propaganda. You got to get started on page 13 to page 32 to get to the meat of it, okay? And I, I just published an article uh, a couple of days ago um, about you know the facts about the treaty. And, and so they're not discussing why in the world are we having you know, a treaty when we don't even know what works. We don't know what, well, they're just saying, oh, if we had more power and more control and more money, we would do a better job. It's like, well, you know, do you throw good money after bad? If, if, if you had started a startup company and put them in charge of this for three years, would you say, oh, let's, let's grow them exponentially large because they did such a crappy job over the past three years. They just needed more money and more control and more power. Okay. It's absurd on its face. They had, um, 33,000 comments a year ago saying no, and they just ignored them, right? In September, in regards to the treaty, they did a very sneaky little move. They said they were going to have another public comment period, but what they actually did with two days notice on September 9th last year, they said, okay, great. We're going to have a slightly different type of 
um, public comment, people can uh, express their opinions via video. And so they set up a site, they gave two days notice, and from uh, the 9th to the 16th of September, they said you can go to the WHO website, and if you hold up your ID card to the camera, your passport or your driver's license or your ID card, and identify yourself, then you can make a public comment. Well, most people are like, well, wait a minute, you know, what, what the heck is that all about? I don't necessarily know that I want to be all public like that. And so I set up a system where people could do that without having to do that and collected hundreds of videos. Now, hundreds of people around the world did submit videos to the WHO. I submitted one. I showed my card. I'm like, hey, I'm, you know, I'm courageous enough to be public about it. But I understood that people would not want to do that. We got hundreds of people commented, and you can go to screwthewho.com, and you can see what your fellow people around the world had to say about this proposed pandemic treaty. Okay? Now, what they essentially want to do is put the WHO in charge. Now, I'm, again, just to be clear, I'm talking about the treaty now. They, they want to create a logistical network that is run by the WHO. They want them to be in charge of the means of production and, and what is you know, to be produced and how it is to be distributed. That's what logistics is, okay? They want 20% of all of the produced products to be under the control of the WHO to distribute. And they want governments to agree to spend 5% of all of the money that they spend on healthcare for pandemic preparedness, prevention, response, and recovery. But those words are not defined, okay? And they also <laughs> currently have in the treaty, um, it would be a requirement that nations have, and literally this is what it says in parentheses, X, X percent. They haven't decided on how much yet. Um, in addition to the 5% on their internal budgets, they want a certain percent to be put into the international kitty, if you will, to be spent helping other nations build out their infrastructure. And, and they, they want essentially developed nations to build out infrastructure in developing nations. Well, okay, I get it, right? You know, poor people, rich people, they want this transfer of wealth but wait a minute, the African nations who are generally, you know, less wealthy, they did better. This is backwards. We should be investing in the African nations solutions and exporting those solutions to the developed world that made such a mess of this. But, you know, that's not how they view it, because what they want really is tens of billions of dollars to go through their fingers, to be, you know, essentially given to the WHO to distribute the way they want it distributed, which is only going to lead to more death and destruction through pharmaceutical poisoning and jabbing. And the people yeah, clearly I'm, I'm said, I'm research no. on this, Jane. <laughs> yeah, no, so I've done some research on this kind of financing side, and it's estimated that the fund will amount to something like $30 billion. Per year. Which is, is per, yeah, per year, for context, is 10 times larger than the entire WHO annual budget. Now, for further context, this, again, I agree with you on the loosely defined comments around pandemic preparedness and response. However, you know, given that we are now in 2023, We've only had three uh, viral outbreaks of pandemic proportion in the last 100 years. Now, of course, we don't include the Spanish flu in that because we're talking 100 years. That, If you go back a little further, okay, four. Uh, but in the last 100 years, strictly speaking, we've had three uh, viral outbreaks of pandemic proportion. But now this level of focus, this level of funding, this level of uh, domineering over global health policy, it, it, just, it just doesn't add up. And, you know, this, uh, this, this power. Actually, if, if, if I is, may push back unfair. on that statement, if I may push back on that statement, if you're, Please, ment yeah. if you're mentally going down the path, the fork in the road, and you're going down the path of you want to help 
the world be healthier, then it doesn't add up. But if you back up and you go down the other path of how do we make money off of pandemics makes all the sense in the world. Oh, totally. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, no surprises that Gavi, Sepi have all emerged during this time as you know, recipients of huge amounts of funding, all, all taking the pharmaceutical-led approach. You know, it's, it's, and, and, you know, the, the, the treaty itself is looking to make normalized drug development within 100 days. You know, it, it's all drug-centric, but it's not preventatives or treatments. It's largely vaccine-dominant, of course. Um, but as we've seen, if I may just add a little detail, one of the um, proposals in the treaty is that the approval of medications be sped up as yes. if speeding up, you know, the approval of medications did not, be, you know, was not met with any problems over the past three years. We sped it up over the past three years. Look what happened. Well, let's speed it up more. Okay. Um, the, the lack of logic, it confounds people because most people, I think, are good and honest and they want other people to be healthy. So if you're thinking, oh, I want people to be healthy, then you look at this and you go, this just doesn't make any sense. But if you go, if you were in a position to be able to change international law, to redistribute wealth to your cronies and set up systems that you could take advantage of, from that point of view, this makes all the sense in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Now, James, one of the things we haven't touched upon yet, you know, you've done a very good job of making the distinction between the treaty itself and the uh, healthcare amendments and the and the process that this has followed, the track that this has followed to date. Um, could you touch upon some of the potential implications? Um, you know, what you've, we've obviously extracted the implications for the pharmaceutical industry and what they stand to gain. But, but from a global health governance point of view, what, what powers exactly will both of these instruments give the WHO? Um, I'll, I'll talk first about the amendments because um, the amendments are actually where most of the transfer of sovereignty and freedoms and, and, and all that happen in the amendments. And it's it's very troublesome because the method by which, which we talked about, you know, they could just be changed. Okay. Um, it, it, it's a much swifter and, and more easily changed document. It only requires uh, a majority. Whereas even within the world health assembly, a treaty would require a two thirds vote in support of the treaty. Okay. And, and so uh, I'll touch on just a handful of the, proposed amendments. Um, first and foremost, in Article 1 of the regulations, they define terminology. And currently, uh, the WHO, under Article 23 of the Constitution of the WHO, is an advisory body. They give advice, right? And it literally says in Article 1 in the definitions, they can give temporary or standing recommendations. And those are defined as non-binding advice. Well, Bangladesh proposed crossing out the term non-binding. Okay. Malaysia proposed a change to Article 42 that says non, uh, uh, I'm sorry, standing and temporary recommendations shall be implemented as soon as possible. Even the International Health Regulations Review Committee's final report said, whoa, wait a minute. Um, we're an advisory body. If you change the definition of the word recommendation and make it become an obligation, make it mandatory, wait a minute, that changes everything. Okay, then you go to Article 2. The proposed amendments for Article 2 and, and many, many other articles were not that there be a, like a certain defined definition of what they call a public health emergency of international concern, where a nation says, oh, something's going on here. Everybody else better pay attention. Okay. P-H-E-I-C, public health emergency of international concern or fake, right? So when they declare a fake, you would think it's like, well, you know, so many people have gotten sick. So many people have died. No, 
there aren't any numerical values on it. The director general just decides. That's what happened with monkeypox. And I call it monkeypox because the K is silent because the nations that have monkeys running around didn't have problems. The nations that have money flowing freely is, are the nations that got monkeypox. He declared it over the vote nine to six of the executive or, or the um, emergency committee who said, no, we don't really have an emergency of international concern. Okay. Well, they want to make it even easier so that a public health emergency of international concern under article two, the scope of the regulations would include anything that would have the potential to be an emergency. Well, then what does an emergency mean? Well, what they really want is a well, everything's a crisis now. They want a constant state of emergency. Um, you know, I wasn't alive during the Roman Empire, but that's where the word started. When there was an emergency, they would have a very respected person in society put into the position of being in charge of dealing with the emergency, and they would bark orders. They would say, "You do this, and you do this, and you do this," and they would dictate orders. They were they were the dictator. You can't, by the definition of the term, have dictatorship unless you have emergency. So they want constant emergency so they can have an ongoing global dictatorship. Then you get to Article 3, which when I read this a year ago, I go, hey, this doesn't sound so bad. The, the principles of the international health regulations, principle number one, the, the regulations must be implemented with full respect for the dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of people. Well, a year ago, I read that and I said, that sounds good. India has proposed an amendment to cross out those words, literally. I mean, you can't make this up. When I first read it in December, my jaw was hanging open. I was like, I can't believe they actually said that. It's in writing. You can read the documents. They would cross out with full respect for dignity, human rights, and fundamental freedoms of people. And so you go, what in the world? Oh, you have to erase a certain part of your brain that has ethics and morals and concern and love for other people. And you realize, no, I, I think they're going down the fork in the road where they actually want to be the World Health Organization. Well, for the past 75 years, and happy birthday, WHO, on April 7th, it's their 75th birthday. So they were designed to be an advisory organization, the World Health Organization. I've been calling them for the last year the World Hypnosis Organization because they've been making recommendations <laughs> and people have been, oh, they have, they have spoken, so we must do what they say. No, it's just advice. Okay. Well, they want to become the World Homicide Organization and build out the pharmaceutical industrial complex. You, you just got to back up. It's kind of like, you know, if you were on a freeway or a highway and, and you take the exit ramp and, and you think you're going to where people want better health for everybody else, you got to back up and go and take the next exit because the fork in the road where they're going, they don't really care about health. They want control, money, and, and in their own words, legally binding authority to change their advisory recommendations into obligatory mandates. That's what's going on, and it's primarily going on in the amendments to the international health regulations. And so um, I know we're getting a little close to the end, so I, I do want to just make sure I talk about something that just happened yesterday. Okay, um, Tess Laurie, who's associated with the World Council for Health, um, put in a UK petition number 635904 to um, require uh, the government to um, respond to what's going on with these amendments, okay? And not to mention the fact that they were adopted last year and they could be rejected. There's still uh, until November to reject them, okay? So petition number 635904, you can get there by going to uk.org stoptheamendments.com. So I encourage anybody who's in the UK, sign the petition, um, uk.stoptheamendments.com. But everybody in the world, you know, go there and understand this is a worldwide, you know, issue. You can't sign the petition if you're outside the UK, but you can learn about it and you can help spread the word. Okay. And, and so you could go to stop the WHO to get all of the information 
and you know, I make myself readily available. Um, my phone number is on uh, in the articles, and you know, I think that's how we met through. I think it was Signal. Um, you know, I encourage people to reach out uh, through the various communication apps. I'm in California. This is a worldwide issue. Um, on the treaty in the UK, uh, there was a petition last year, like I mentioned, and 11 months later, they get around to having a debate. Um, that's going to be happening April 17th uh, at 4.30 um, in Parliament. Yeah, well, James, I think we've, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the WHO's birthday. At least by UK standards, it's already past the retirement age. Um, and I think maybe it's time that we retire the WHO. Um, I, I think The thing I find really interesting is, of course, Many of these things would have probably just slipped under the net um, in, in, over the last decade because the way that they are currently operating is unlikely anything new. Like they, they probably have all, always operated in this kind of fashion. The, the, the reality is, though, we've not had a single global event like this which causes the WHO to be put under the spotlight in the, in the way that it has, at least by a small fraction of us who are paying attention. Um, and as such, you know, it's, it's caused people like you and I and, and many others to say, well, hang on a minute. This is this is this is not how global health governance should be conducted. And the, to me, the, the, the treaty and the amendments are the tip of the iceberg, because even at the early stages of the pandemic response in 2020, I, I took the time to look into uh, because the, the WHO was making some crazy moves right from the outset. Right from the outset, there were there was just just, just just mad moves happening, and some of their press conferences made no sense. So it took me on a path of looking at like 20, 20 years of worth of criticism and calls for reformation or the replacement of the WHO, and the evidence is damning. The, 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 you know the, the path that's been blazed over the last twenty years to me points very clearly that this organization is not fit for purpose in its current form to be responsible for global health governance, let alone pandemic response and preparedness. I'm going to be helping them celebrate their birthday on Friday the 7th. Um, I'll be <laughs> publishing a summary of what I think you're talking about. Um, so look forward to that. Um, people can go to exitthewho.com or exitthewho.org if you want to learn more about why we should get the heck out of there. Um, you know, th things change and um, organizations um, are easily corrupted. And, and when you look at the combination of industry working hand in hand with government, uh, Benito Mussolini uh, defined that as fascism, you know, corporatism under, you know, working hand in hand with government. We see that with social media and all that sort of thing. But I've recognized that there's actually been a 21st century upgrade to standard fascism, which is a third leg, which are what they refer to as relevant stakeholders. Other people call them non-government organizations or civil society or nonprofits or foundations, you know, think, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Rockefeller Foundation, um, the Wellcome Trust, you know, all, all that sort of thing. Um, the way they launder the money is to create an organization that has the appearance of being nonprofit. And the money goes in, but the money has strings. And the money ends up not making people healthier demonstrably, but making a lot of people wealthier. And I'll give you one more example. I know we're probably getting close to being out of time. Um, a year ago, um, well, half a year ago in September, the United States launched what is now known as the World Bank Pandemic Fund, right? The United States is only obligated to give the WHO $100 million per year, 109. But the U.S. promised $1 billion into a totally different pandemic resilience fund, Okay. And, and so billions of dollars are going into this fund separate from the WHO. And the Indonesian health minister at the B20 last year in November told the audience, which was a bunch of business people, we've got this multi-billion dollar fund 
for you know building resilience, whatever the heck that means. Okay, and he said, go invest. This is a great business opportunity, and and so we're going to continue to have emergencies and pandemics as long as emergencies and pandemics are allowed to be profitable. And that's what we're dealing with here. If it doesn't make sense to you, it's because you're thinking about health. If you start realizing that they're focused on the transfer of wealth and you go, oh, this does make sense. I see why they're doing it. No, 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 no. That needs to stop. We want this. You want that. This has got to come to a head. And I, I'm, I have every reason to be optimistic because we're not supposed to be having this conversation. This was all supposed to be just sliding through nice and quietly. But we know about it. Genie's out of the bottle. You, you can't put it back in. The people are now aware. I just want to you know, pitch the petition in, in the UK, number 635904. Go to uk.stoptheamendments.com. And, you know, reach out to me through um, StopTheWho.com. Um, people around the world are waking up. And it's really, you know, is this about health or is this about the transfer of wealth? Absolutely. Thank you, James. And thanks for that call to action. The links, of course, there's several links mentioned throughout today's episode. Um, we'll, we'll place in the show notes in the description of this episode. In fact, with the 75th birthday coming, it would only be right that we've released this episode in celebration on the 7th. So uh, watch <laughs> if you're watching this now uh, live, um, happy birthday to the WHO. It's time uh, to put it in its place and send it off to its retirement. James, this has been a, a super enlightening conversation. Thank you so much for, for your insights today. Uh, to our listeners at home, please make sure you share this episode. Uh, this conversation is, is, is simply not happening. And where it is happening, people are focusing on the treaty, as James rightly uh, mentioned, but we really need to look at the architecture that underpins the treaty, which is these international health amendments. And we still have the opportunity to make sure uh, that those are overturned. So thanks again, James, for your, for your insights today. This has been uh, such a powerful conversation. Thank you.